This is the final episode of Understanding 1 Corinthians because we're going to be looking at the final chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. And that's been quite the journey so far, and I hope uh, hope you enjoy listening through these teachings and hope they helped you understand 1 Corinthians a little better. Um, but I wanted to make sure that we had an episode on this final chapter, chapter 16, because we often skip over the opening and closing remarks of Paul's letters. They seem like a waste of space, almost, or maybe nothing more than just a formality. Paul's saying hello, and then he says goodbye. Why do we need to read this? Why not just spend more time on the meaty middle parts where he talks about doctrine and theological issues and church issues and all these kinds of things? But you have to remember that when you're writing in the first century, you got to be economical with your space. It takes a lot to be able to write something down and send it across because they're writing on scrolls and space is limited. They don't have a printing press. So every word has got to count. And Paul wastes no space. Everything he writes is brimming with deep theology, including the final remarks he has in his letters when he says goodbye and when he lists a bunch of people that he knows. 1 Corinthians 16 reminds us that this is about real people who wrote real letters to real churches about real things happening. It's one thing to read about World War II in a textbook. It's another to read letters from soldiers to their wives from the battlefield or journal entries from kids living under foreign occupation. Remember that a large portion of the New Testament is in the form of letters. These are from people to people. Paul knew people. He spent years with them. The apostles weren't just these faceless people. They were friends who walked and ate and worked and served together. And some of them even died together. So the church itself is not a mere idea. It is a people embodied in time and place and history. And now more than ever, the church must be the counterculture that builds real and concrete relationships in a world that's falling further and further into isolation and detachment. So this chapter is not a throwaway chapter. It gives us insight into what it means in real time for the church to be a living body, different members of one entity, of one organism. This is Understanding 1 Corinthians. Paul wraps up 1 Corinthians with some practical ways the church can unify as a body. Individual Christians are members of the local church body, but local churches are also members of the universal church body. So the early church existed in a kind of a holy internet. It's a phrase that some theologians have coined. And where churches in different regions are, are connected by certain individuals. Church unity is not abstract. It's embodied. And it's embodied in concrete, specific ways. Shared finances, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 16. Shared personnel, 4 through 11. Shared mission, verses 12 through 18. And finally, a shared love, verses 19 to 23. So pay attention to these things. Shared finances, personnel, mission, and love as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. 
And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. The Apostle Paul, right off the bat, calls for unity in finances in verses 1 to 3. It's all fun and games until money gets involved. But shared finances represent a shared responsibility. Paul calls for Corinth to set aside a collection of funds to give to the church at Jerusalem. And we know from Romans chapter 15, verse 26, that Jerusalem has many poor Christians in their midst who need support. So Christians of all classes, not just the wealthy, are expected to be generous in the church at Corinth. They are to be generous not only for practical reasons, but for theological reasons as well. The prophets are filled with visions of the future when Gentiles will bring their spoils to Jerusalem. Think about the latter parts of Isaiah, or you think about the vision of Ezekiel or Jeremiah. The collection of funds from the predominantly Gentile Corinthians to the predominantly Jewish church at Jerusalem serves as a microcosm of this redemptive historical reality. So this is not mere sentiment, but the playing out of God's plan to unite both Jew and Gentile in Christ on a small stage. So the practical and the theological are intertwined. They are doing something that has redemptive historical significance. Now, it's important to note that this collection is to be done on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. Jews worship the Lord on the Sabbath, which was a Saturday. And the reason for that, we find out in the Old Testament, is because God worked six days and rested the seventh. But here, as in other places, like Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, we see that Christians worship on the first day of the week, called the Lord's Day. And this is because, one, Christ rose on the Lord's Day, and two, in Christ, God has begun a new creation. So the first creation was you work six days, rest the seventh. But in the new creation, it begins with the day of rest. It begins with the resurrection that Christ 
has brought forth into the world. So even the day that we worship is filled with theological significance. Now, Paul also has some street smarts. He's got some savvy. He knows that after Corinth receives his barn burner of a letter, some are not going to take kindly to his visit. So he asks that the collection be done ahead of time, so that when he comes, he doesn't have to take an offering. It can just be a clean transaction. Furthermore, Paul ensures that trusted members, accredited members of the church at Corinth, will personally bring the funds to Jerusalem. He might tag along if it's prudent, but his desire is for everything to be above reproach. Nothing can lose the trust of a church than the mismanagement of funds. And so Paul is saying, look, you can send your guys who you trust to bring the funds there. I can go along if you want. No matter what, we're going to do this above the line. We're going to make this above reproach. So there's a shared financial burden. Paul connects one church to care for another church. And so that's part of how the unity of the body is expressed among local churches. There's a second way that's expressed, and it's expressed in shared personnel. You see this in verses 4 through 11. If the early church operated as a holy internet, then certain individuals functioned as servers, keeping the whole thing running. So Paul, as an apostle, held authority over all churches, which meant that his schedule was packed. So he informs Corinth that he plans to visit on his way to Macedonia. Now, travel in the first century was lengthy, treacherous, and costly. You can't just hop on a flight, give a nice talk, then head home the next morning. You can't just hop in your car and drive a couple hours and then be back home that night. Paul knows that this is going to be a serious endeavor. So he says that if the Lord permits, he plans to spend an extended stay through the entire winter until it's warm enough for ships to travel safely. So basically the whole winter's shot. If he's going to go somewhere, he's got to be stranded there until the ship's are able to travel safely through the water and it's not freezing or it's not storming or whatever. But Paul doesn't see this as an inconvenience, but as an opportunity. If the Lord permits, Paul hopes that he will stay for a lengthy time with the Corinthians and that they will provide him with renewed supplies for future missions and church planning, but also comfort and joy. The comfort and joy that comes with spending time among dear friends. Paul had a lot of hard things uh, to say about the Corinthians. That's pretty much what his letter's about. But he also loved them to tears, and he desired to be in their presence. And you can see how meaningful these relationships were to him. So this is not just a pit stop. He wants to stay, dwell, teach, rebuke, fellowship with these Christians. Now, in the meantime, before he can make it over there, Paul plans to remain at Ephesus until Pentecost, which is a Jewish festival. Timothy will go to Corinth as his representative while he's not able to be there. Now, again, this is not an enviable task considering Paul has spent 16 chapters whacking the hornet's nest, right? The church at Corinth is not going to be super excited, or at least some members of the church at Corinth aren't going to be super excited. And that's why Paul says, look, welcome Timothy. Put him at ease. He's my apostolic representative. So respect him. Show him the respect due to somebody like me, an apostle. Now, both Timothy and Paul aren't pastors in the traditional sense, Pastors slash elders are confined to local congregations, but Paul and Timothy represent and have authority over all congregations. So there is an overlap in apostolic and pastoral work, but it's not a perfect overlap. And we should be careful in applying commands to Timothy in a one-to-one manner for modern-day pastors. If you want more information about this, check out my other podcast, That'll Preach. There's an episode about what the New Testament teaches about pastors, and it gets a little bit deeper into this topic. But there's shared personnel. 
Paul has responsibilities to all these different churches, and it's through him and his network of relationships that churches are communicating to one another. And Timothy operates in that representative capacity as well. But there's this idea of these relationships binding these local churches together. And that's the organic tissue that keeps the body aligned. Now, beyond just uh, personnel and beyond just finances, we have a shared mission. That's verses 12 through 18. So Paul reminds Corinth about their shared vision and their shared mission and their shared goal. We learned in chapter one that Corinth was divided into factions. Some were of Paul and others were of Apollos. And Paul returns to this division by affirming his brotherhood with Apollos. He's basically saying, hey, Apollos is our brother, our O-U-R brother, and he will come when he gets the chance, which assumes that they're communicating with one another. So Paul's kind of saying, you know, subtly, hey, we're good. Me and Apollos are on the same team. We're on good terms. So you guys dividing over each of us, creating cults of personality, that's not how we're rolling together, right? We are aligned. And so Paul says, look, be watchful. Be watchful against the fleshly desire to divide. And then stand firm in the faith. That is the objective reality of Christ's death and resurrection and the true unity you have in the Holy Spirit. That's an objective reality. And he says, this is how grown men act. Act like men. Grow up. Stop getting involved in these childish battles. And the mark of a grown man, a mark of a mature church is that everything that you do is done in love. Right? And that's what Paul is trying to demonstrate to them. Not in coddling, but in genuine love. Paul is fighting for the unity of the church. And sometimes that requires rebuke. Sometimes that's comfort. Sometimes that's counsel. Whatever it is, Paul's goal is to build up the church in love. And Paul actually brings up an example of somebody who does love well. He says that don't imitate those who divide, right? But those who serve. That's his principle. So he mentions the household of Stephanus. So Stephanus is a man who leads his household well. And they were some of the earliest converts in Achaia, which is the Roman province in which Corinth is located. And we learned earlier in 1 Corinthians that Paul actually personally baptized Stephanus and his household. But notice how careful Paul is. He's basically trying to let them know, look, don't esteem Stephanus because I baptize him. That would be giving into the factionalism and self-exaltation that I'm fighting against. Esteem him and his household because they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, right? Esteem him because of the Christ-like attitude he has and that he leads his family in, in their devotion to their church. That's why you should lift them up. Furthermore, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, which might be members of his household, are also uh, good examples of, of true friendship and brotherhood. They likely brought the letter from the Corinthians to Paul the very letter that Paul writes 1 Corinthians in response to, and they spent time with Paul and they refreshed Paul. They were members of the church at Corinth who came to Paul and Paul was like, man, I couldn't be with you, but you sent these guys to me and it was life-giving to me. These men spent weeks together. They walked dusty roads together. They boarded old ships. They shared meals and cramped spaces. They, they lived life together. They suffered together. And you can imagine those conversations, the laughter, the tears, the true affection and brotherhood that comes from sharing trials in the pursuit of a common mission. So when he mentions Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, these are not faceless entities. These are people with whom he has a history with, that he loves, and their relationship matters. And Paul is refreshed by that friendship. He values their friendship. 
and he desires that all honor those who display such good qualities of a loyal and caring friend. I think that's one of the hardest things sometimes in church, making friends. You can feel alone. You move to a new place. You go to a church. There's always these cliques that are established. It's hard to break in. You feel like maybe you've been in a church for a while and people have left. And you feel that hole where you're like, I need these deep, intimate relationships. And I think Paul shows that this is a valuable part of life. And whatever you do, you need to seek these out. Whatever sacrifices it might take, these are important. And I think we as a church can do more to help foster these kinds of friendships. So there's shared finances, there's shared personnel, and there's a shared mission within these relationships. But there's also a shared love. And that's verses 19 to 23. And Paul expresses what he commands. He brings greetings from all the churches in Asia. He brings greetings from Aquila and Prisca's house church. And all the brothers greet them. And then he tells them to greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't let love stay sealed off from action. And when you hear a holy kiss, you might giggle or chuckle because it seems more strange than hospitable today. But I think it shows the importance of physical touch. Lack of physical touch is a significant factor in depression. We need physical touch. So maybe don't give a holy kiss at church, but you can hug your brother. You can let your sister in Christ know she is loved by all the saints. You can let your theology work itself out tangibly. And physical touch and, and, and uh, expressions and embodied expressions of, of our affection for one another are really important. And Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss. And think about how powerful that is. Think about all the divisions that are happening in the church at Corinth. And he's saying, look, I want you to do this action to each other. It's, it's, it's really hard to hate someone when you're showing them this kind of affection. And Paul wants to build in that camaraderie within this church that keeps fighting amongst themselves. And then Paul ends the letter with a personal exhortation written from his own hand. If you don't love the Lord, you're cursed. He calls for the Lord to come. And he says that the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul likely dictated most of his letters to a scribe. But here at the end, he wants this to come straight from the heart. This is from his hand, right? This is ink to pen, right? Or whatever they use to papyrus. So love the Lord, patiently await his coming, and live in his grace and extend that grace to one another, right? And know that I, Paul, love you. That's essentially, those are his parting words. And 1 Corinthians begins and ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul's personal love for the church. He begins with his love, calling them saints, telling them that they're in Christ and all the, the grace and the love from God that flows because of that. And then he ends it with that same idea. It's the beginning, the middle, the end of Corinthians is the grace of God and the love of God and the love that Paul has for this church that has a lot of significant problems. And no one had more reason to be cynical of the church than Paul. Nobody understood the flaws of the church like Paul. Nobody had been hurt by the church like Paul, but he never stopped loving the church because Christ never stops loving the church. And if he wants to imitate Christ and we are to imitate him as he imitates Christ, we also should never stop loving the church. Does the church have problems? Absolutely. You must rebuke sin. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. Does the, does the church uh, disappoint you and, and let you down? Does it have infighting? Absolutely. It's happening in the first century church. It happens in the 21st century church. But, but, the church is still 
in a sense, a supernatural entity. The church was bought for by the blood of Christ. The church is united in the very Holy Spirit that God sent to us. And the church is the family under God the Father. And that is a reality no matter how ugly it gets. And that is the anchor that allows us to treat one another with love, to imitate the cross, to have hope in the resurrection, and in between to use our gifts to build up this body in love. And so, Paul's words, I leave to you, the listener, that this is as applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 